Well, good morning, church. Just enough time for me to get some dry clothes on. Let me say thank you, Jesus. Last time I sloshed around the stage for uh, the, the next 30 minutes while I finished preaching. <laughs> but anyway, y'all, y'all fun? Y'all okay? Yeah. Okay. You're a little subdued this morning. All right. That's good. Yeah. All right. Reverend, I see. Okay. We're doing a reverend Sunday. Very good, very good. By the way, I just feel like saying this because sometimes I want to explain some stuff. Like, you know that Honey in the Rock song? That puzzled me when it came out. I love the song. How about you? But Honey in a Rock? Like what, what, what? Did you know that some countries still today, like Chile and other places, I think I got that right, they actually go harvest honey from the cliffs on the rock. That's where a certain kind of bee, like, makes these huge, and I mean massive, like, nests and honeys dripping from the rocks. And they have to swing down over the rocks of the cliff to harvest it and bring it back up or lower it further down. And that's where a lot of our honey comes from, by the way, if it's not locally made in, like, a beehive. Anyway, that, that was free. That's not part of our message. I just wanted to share that. Honey is, honey is in abundance. So, so what God is saying through his word is there's an abundance for you. You think of this hive that is three, four, five feet across and six to eight feet long, and they're harvesting honey, you know, from that, which will, okay, y'all don't care, I do too. <clears throat> I want to uh, make mention of a really fun uh, thing coming up called the Family Fun Night, and um, we're getting teased a little bit about becoming a Pentecostal snake church. I promise you that we're not. We'll, this, this, they would, we'll be full of reptiles and lizards, and our friend Jesse Rothaker from Lebanon County will be here. Um, it's called Forgotten Friends, and he has like a rescue uh, thing that he does and then puts on a really fun show. It's only $2 a person, but listen, it's coming this, this Friday. Friday. I was going to say Saturday. This Friday, January 26th, so we'll be here. Um, so get, get signed up so that we can know how many snacks to put out, but it's going to be a fun show for the whole family to enjoy. And so I just want to highlight that, that the registration will soon be closing. All right. Hey, we're in a series called Wells. And in particular, we're talking about Wells of Revival. I was thinking about this this week again, um, obviously. But um, when we go to revive someone... Let's just say, God forbid, they had cardiac arrest or somebody fainted. Are we expecting them to go through a revival or are we expecting them to be revived and sustained? Well, that's a serious question because when we pray for revival, if we're not careful, we're going to look at the past moves of God where there was revival and then like odd oddities we say and then life went back to normal. Actually, we should be in a state of revived, right? Revival so that it's something that should be maintained and we, that should be the norm. Come on, somebody. That should be the place where, where life is then sustained. We don't expect them to go, well, we revived him, but I fully expect him to go back into cardiac arrest sometime next year. Well, no, we don't expect that. Even if it happens, right, we expect to then revive them again and we pray for life to be sustained. And so as we go further into this Wells series, I want us to have the right mentality. Let's pause for prayer. A scripture, but let's pause for prayer. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for today. We want to thank you for your word. We ask that you would teach us today, enlighten us again. Holy Spirit, you said you would lead us and guide us into all truth. And I pray that you would do that again and again and again as we come together like this with the Grace Church family. Teach us today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read from Psalms 12. 
Psalms 126, rather, 1 to 4, and this is in the Passion Translation. It says, it was like a dream come true when you freed us from our bondage and brought us back to Zion. And we laughed and laughed and overflowed with gladness. This is a poetic version. This is the Passion Translation, but sometimes I like how poetic it is. We were left shouting for joy and singing your praise. All the nations saw it and joined in, saying the Lord has done great miracles for them. Yes, he did mighty miracles. We are overjoyed. Now, Lord, do it again. Somebody say, do it again. again. Restore us to our former glory. And so I titled this message in this series, Do It Again. And as, as we go through this, I want that to be our prayer. Do it again. It doesn't mean we're looking back. But when we look back, I don't know about you, even when I read Old Testament, when I look back and look back at previous moves of God, I get hungry because I say, if it's possible, then it's possible now. Or I say, what is possible now? And when I was uh, a very new Christian, I got saved at age 19, got into my very early 20s. There was this, this old gentleman, a prophet guy that adopted me as one of his sons. And we would sit for hours on his, uh, on his patio or his pavilion at the picnic table under his pavilion in his backyard during the summer, of course. We would sit for hours studying the Bible. And a lot of what we talked about was revival in church history. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, I can't be more bored. I, 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 for some reason, wasn't bored because I didn't know church history at all. I didn't know anything about Martin Luther and, you know, what started the great uh, Protestant Reformation and back in the 1500s and how they broke away from Catholicism. We were talking through all of that. I have Anabaptist roots, and I didn't even know much about that, how they were persecuted because they baptized adults instead of babies. And, and, you know, and the Baptists come out of that, the Mennonites, you know, the brethren and all the actual Protestant movements were birthed back then. And so we would sit for hours and talk and study and he would reminisce and I I learned so much in those few years just being um, I don't know doused with like history and revival moves and then we would talk about the great awakening and the second great awakening in the 1700s and 1800s and people like Jonathan Edward and George Whitfield and man there was hundreds of thousands of people that came to know the Lord in a few short years and Charles Finney was in the 1800s so the second great awakening and he began a career that would eventually convert 500,000 people to the Lord in a short amount of time. Now, they didn't drive like you did. They had horse and buggies still back then. Come on. Or they walked to the tent revival. But that's a lot of people. And by the way, Charles Finney came to Reading. Did you know that? I found some history. Um, he came to Reading for a short stint. He was all over. But um, in the winter of 1829, he came to a Presbyterian church near you. I didn't, I didn't identify exactly which one. Some of you might know that. Um, it was back when Pre Presbyterians, it's very clear in history, they didn't teach salvation. They didn't, they didn't feel that you should have a personal salvation experience. Now, I know some Presbyterian churches do teach that, and quite frankly, some don't. But that's okay. I'm not here to pick on my Presbyterian brothers. But back then, they needed a revival. Come on, somebody. And it says the whole church got saved. doesn't say how many. But there was only 10,000 people in the city of Reading back then. And so uh, there was, it made a really big footprint. Here's the one conversion of someone named Amos Buck right here in Reading. It says, after attending a meeting with uh, Charles Finney um, and, and along with his wife, uh, Amos Buck, he went home with the sermon he just heard having torn him to pieces. The conviction of sin on this man was so intense that his emotions overcame him and he lost all bodily strength. 
With his family fearing he would die unless he could, unless he could be given hope, they sent for Finney, which he immediately made the visit. And upon arrival, he said that he heard the man moaning and howling, and that was while he was still outside the house. This was Finney's description of what he witnessed upon entering the home. He was writhing in agony, grinding his teeth, and literally gnawing his tongue for pain. He cried out to me, Oh, Mr. Finney, I am lost. I am a lost soul. So kneeling next to the man who was lying on the floor with his head propped up by his wife, Finney gave him directions for salvation, and immediately his demeanor changed from utter fear to being free and joyful in hope. Somebody say deliverance. Somebody say, do it again, Lord. That's my prayer as I look back through this stuff. I don't know that I've ever seen that level of conviction for one's sins, at least not in a long, long time. How about you? How about in your own personal life? Dwight L. Moody was in the 1800s. Some of you heard of him. He's preaching to a record number of people in the British Isles, as many as over 2 million. And then he came to America and started traveling through the cities, and he converted Many, many people to Christianity in those years. And then later, there's a great revival happening in, in Wales. Uh, I studied a lot of U.S., but this was in the country of Wales in the early 1900s. Nearly the entire island converted to Christianity, turned from sin. It's one of my favorite things to read about. Man, they closed the bars, it says. They attended evening services almost every evening. They preached to everyone they knew. But one story that really stuck out to me is the presence of God and the conviction of sin was so strong in those days... This is in the country of Wales now, that the sailors arriving on the ships with cargo, the tradesmen coming into the harbor, were already on their knees repenting and crying out to God for forgiveness as the ships were nearing the dock. That's how strong the conviction was for their state of life. Man, I pray for the day when people come onto this parking lot or they're just entering the outskirts of Reading. Come on, somebody. And the conviction of sin is so strong in the atmosphere that they come to you and say, how can I get saved? <laughs> Amen. That's the power of God. And that's what I mean. When I look back, I say, Lord, do that again. Well, anyway, the Welsh revival spread to... Um, the Welsh-speaking settlers here in Pennsylvania. And then in the late 1904, revivals broke out everywhere. And by 1905, it said revivals were happening all across the U.S. in big cities everywhere, Brooklyn and places in Michigan, Denver, Schenectady, Nebraska, North and South Carolina, and on and on and on. And come on, Taylor University, Yale University, somebody experienced revival even back then. Asbury College in Wilmer, Kentucky, they experienced something more recent as well. But back then, they also experienced tremendous tremendous amounts of people saying yes to Jesus Christ. The Reverend Billy Sunday was one of the key figures back then. One million, they say. They started to record salvations around that time. About one million uh, converted to Christianity, but then it was too many to count. Somebody say, do it again, Lord. Now we're up to the early 1900s, and Azusa Street Revival is one of the most historic series of revival meetings that took place, starting in uh, Los Angeles, California, is led by uh, Re the Reverend William J. Seymour. Um, I'm going to get to some stuff here, and, and listen, I know some of you are like, I don't really enjoy history, but I'm asking you to ask God for hunger to say, do it again. Is that okay? So get through these facts. But the Reverend William Seymour, on the night of April 9th, 1906, him and seven other men were waiting on God on Bonnie Bray Street in Los Angeles when suddenly, as though hit by a bolt of lightning, they were knocked from their chairs to the floor. Somebody say, do it again, Lord. <laughs> Careful what you pray. You might not want to pray everything I tell you to pray. <laughs> 
Do it again. And then the other seven men began to speak in tongues and shout out loud, uh, praising God. And the news, of course, spread quickly. The city was stirred. The crowds gathered and services were moved outside to accommodate the crowds who came from all around the city. And people fell down as they approached and attributed to God. People were baptized in the Holy Spirit and the sick were said to be healed. And the testimony that came out of that from, from people again and again was this. I am saved. I'm sanctified and filled with the Holy Ghost. I am saved. I am sanctified. I'm filled with the Holy Ghost. Somebody say again, do it again, Lord. And those people, by the way, let me deviate just slightly and say a little more. Those people paid a high price for what we call the Pentecostal movement. Some people thought they were crazy. Just like when the outpouring of Pentecost happened in Scripture, they looked at them and said they must be drunk. Well, they said these people in L.A. were totally out of, out of their minds. They're mentally ill. They got rocks thrown at them. They were insulted in, in, in all kinds of ways. Their kids could barely get to school safely, and they paid a high price. They were ostracized from all society. But guess what? The movement grew so quickly and so fast it spread to the entire U.S. and across the whole world and a lot of churches point uh, especially Pentecostal churches have their roots in this initial outpouring on Azusa Street still today and sometimes I pause and I thank God for our forefathers who paid a price like that that I didn't that I don't have to pay then there was the post-world war ii awakening and and uh, you know uh after the, the, the Civil War, and some of us don't know this, but there was a latter rain revival. A lot of people came to Lord after that because the country was just in havoc. A lot of people had died, of course, and um, the, the healing revival. And then this is where uh, Billy Graham uh, rose as one of the leading evangelists. This is in the 1947, 1948 time frame. Man, he, Billy Graham preached to estimated 2.2 billion people in his lifetime all around the world in foreign countries as well. He saw that an estimated, it's got to be estimated though, 2.2 million people at least were converted to Christianity during his ministry. Raise your hand if you remember Billy Graham. What an amazing evangelist. He still lived in our day. And then my friend, as we, as we would talk, he would always come back to um, the charismatic renewal and the Jesus movement in the 1960s and the 1970s. And now we're getting close to some of your hearts because that's when you guys, some of you guys came to know Jesus. You know, how many, how many watched the 2023 movie called Jesus Revolution that just came out last year? That's really, really worth seeing. Maybe we should have a movie night and just watch that. But I heard so many prophecies leading up to that before it was actually made and released. A lot of prophecies from a lot of people leading up to it and say, there will be yet another Jesus movement. And I'm going, I somehow know what they mean because my friend talked about it so, so much. Because that's when he himself got saved and healed and delivered from drugs. He came out of the hippie movement. Come on. He was sex, drugs, and rock and roll were all the rage, man. And when he got delivered from drugs, he had such a radical experience that actually... Actually, he went through a season where he had this, I'm going to be a little gross, excuse, cover your ears if you don't like this stuff and just look away. But he had a massive, massive blister right here on his chest that actually oozed for like a week straight and then it just got healed. But all the toxins that he had put in his body from his drug days started to ooze out and then it just cleared up and he was gloriously set free from a drug habit of many, many years. It was just an amazing, amazing deliverance. And I would, sit, I would sit and listen to these stories, and, and again, I would say, oh, come on, will, will that ever happen? Will I ever see that kind of stuff in my day? Well, anyway, in what's called the Jesus Revolution, thousands of young people were saved, and they rejected the culture of, uh, of drugs and 
the, the hippie movement was big on free sex, of course, and uh, the secular rock and roll scene was very toxic and quite honestly demonic, and they started showing up in churches everywhere. And no, they didn't put on a suit to come into church. And so a lot of denominational churches started to reject them and go, I don't know that I want this filth in my church. And so a lot of that season, man, they actually started their own churches, man. They also made their own songs. And the modern day worship movement, as we know it, a lot of songs go back to that era. New bands were birthed overnight. They brought in drums to church. Come on, somebody. They brought in the, the simple guitar and then electric guitars to church, which we're still doing today. And you wonder sometimes how we arrived, you know, how we switched from hymns. And I still love some of the old hymns, by the way. As you can see, we fit them in now and then. But it changed the whole landscape of Christianity. And some of us come into a church now and we don't even know what our forefathers fought and how they got rejected when they were in the middle of a move of God and what they had to put up with. Literally, they just had, had uh, churches on the beach, especially in California. They would baptize people in the ocean by the hundreds and by the thousands, and they would just gather in circles and worship wherever they could get a warehouse, wherever they could get a storefront in someone's living room. It didn't matter. And then in that same season, the Word of Faith movement was birthed. And, and um, as you know, Kenneth Hagin and others were launched in, the 19, in like around the year 1966. And though Grace Church wasn't launched until 1984, some of you know this, Pastor Ray graduated from Rhema Bible School, as did some of you understand, at the Kenneth Hagin School of Ministry, right, called Rhema. Uh, it started in the heart of the Jesus movement, right, a.k.a the charismatic renewal. And, and so just so you know that that's when a lot of those amazing ministries that we're still benefiting from today were birthed. And um, that's also when Alicia's mom and dad, Calvin and Steph, you know, were saved during that, that season, right? 60s and 70s, amazing time. Amazing legacies were born. And, and then I wasn't saved until 1990. And so I'm just finding out about all this stuff, you know, as I'm listing back on history. And man, I found a spiritful church called Dove Christian Fellowship when I was 19, and I got radically saved and filled with the Spirit as well. Thus began my journey out of what I would call extreme legalism and toxic denominationalism to pursue and to discover a God that wanted me to have the Word and the Spirit. Come on, somebody. The Word and the Spirit is still necessary today, man. It's great if we know Scripture upon Scripture, and I always want to include Scripture. I'll get to Scripture today, I promise. Some people are like, is he going to preach the Bible? I might. I might if I get there. If y'all hang around till lunch, I'm going to get there. <laughs> and then by the mid-1990s, we experienced another few revivals, or some called them renewals or awakenings across the nation. Um, it started with, you know, the Toronto blessing up in, uh, up in Canada. This was 1994 now, and I'm only saved for like three or four years at this point. And, and then into 1995, the Brownsville revival happened, and I, I talked about this. Many, many times, but 100,000 people, by the way, were saved in the Pensacola revival. And actually, my wife, Alicia, was there as a little girl. Did I get that right? Her parents took her down there not to get saved, but experience it. You were already saved as a young child, but they experienced an amazing, amazing manifestation of God's glory down there. But I did visit the Toronto Blessing a little bit before that. Uh, a few years after it was going strong, I visited to the Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship during that time. Y'all getting really quiet, but yeah, it was weird. <laughs> and, and sometimes I don't know how to talk about it because it ended up so weird and so wacky, but, and, and we can talk about that. But listen, 
When it, when, when it was in its height, there was such an amazing manifestation of God's love and power that you could not deny the move of the Holy Spirit. It was back to those days where you could feel it in the parking lot. The only way that I can explain it in its natural terms is static electricity would come on everybody when you jumped out of your car. And Alicia visited with her family there as well. My brother visited. A lot of people that I know were just making treks up there every other weekend for a while. And then it came back to some of the churches here in the U.S. But what we experienced when you walk in is it just a tangible love of God a tangible presence that felt almost like electricity and and here, here's what I want to say and I'll get to a little bit later just because people took that and tried to make a religion out of it or to focus on man instead of the man Jesus Christ doesn't mean it didn't start as an authentic move of God are you okay with that for now Okay, okay. So I'm, not, I'm okay uh, acknowledging the wacky. So, so I, don't, I don't want that, you know, to, to, to rule and to reign or to look back and to say, oh, Vern just wants the wacky days. No, I really don't. I want the tangible presence of God like I always did. Because when I got hungry at age 19, sitting on that patio on the back streets of Lebanon, just absorbing all that God did. And then we did an Old Testament study as well with him. We went through the Old Testament, and it's the same thing. I got hungry to say, if God did this stuff why can't he do it now we should be asking those questions otherwise why do we read history I get bored with history really quick ask Alicia you know we go down to Virginia to visit this place what twice now Williamsburg and I just see old buildings it's one of our favorite places though because when you actually study how these people lived you actually get into their lives. Man, these people paid a high price for that amazing place and for the foundation of our country and all that. But otherwise, you can read history and get really bored. Like, okay, well, thanks for sharing. What does that do? What actually should create hunger in us? And it should, it should lead to some questions. Are we serving the same God or not? Is it the same God of miracles or isn't it? KK, good. Three of you said yes. So when I visited Ottawa, Ontario, which was a little bit north of Toronto at the time, I experienced something that changed my life forever. And this wasn't even in Toronto. This was a group of pastors that were meeting, and there was a pastor friend of mine who was like a traveling evangelist. He said, would you accompany me? I said, absolutely. I'd love to travel with you. He was putting on a whole bunch of weekend conferences and way up in the north of Canada. And they paused on the afternoon session just to talk about the revival or the renewal happening in Toronto. Before I knew it, the guy stopped preaching and started praying, and the pastors just all hit the floor, including me. And we spent the next hour just crying on the floor, some on our knees, some just laying flat out. I woke up like an hour later going, what happened to me? And what I mean by woke up, everybody got faint. The power of God just descended on that place like I never experienced anywhere else in my life before or since. Come on, somebody. And you might have experienced it elsewhere. That's okay. I understand it wasn't the only place. But for me, that was the only place that experienced that kind of tangible power. I don't think I could have moved if I would have tried. And I cried my guts out for 30 minutes straight. And then I cried again later because they just kept walking around. I don't know how some people were. But some, just a few pastors were walking around just keeping praying for me. We were there till way in the mid-afternoon, way past our afternoon session. And instead of talking about it, we experienced it. And we, we left there going, can you do it again? Can we take it back home? Can we experience this in Pennsylvania? Can we experience this wherever we go? And I'm contending for something today. I'm saying, yes, Lord. 
This generation needs their own revival. You cannot live off of mine. You can, I cannot live off of my friend's revival from my mentor from, from Lebanon back in the day. I cannot live off of my in-law's revival. I cannot live off of the Jesus movement that happened in the 60s or the Azusa Street revival back in the 1800s. I need a revival for me, myself, today, and so do you. Amen, somebody? <clears throat> and then in the mid-90s, there was the Promise Keepers revival. Raise your hand if you've been there. Come on. Yeah, a few of you. Where's Barry? I know Barry went. Uh, Barry Diamond. Yeah, there he is. Come on, Barry. And a few of you went with him. Come on. There was like a, a, a revival among men back then. How many, how many would say, we need that again? This was all about men. Sorry, women, you need your own revival. But the Promise Keepers revival was men coming out of the woodwork, and as many as 5 million had attended as much as, as, much as 100 conferences over a period of a few years. I was, the, I was at, in the one in D.C. Is that the one you were at, Barry, in D.C.? Yeah, me too. I didn't see you back then. I'm not sure where you were. <laughs> There's a couple million people there, right? It was hard to get in, hard to get out. And, uh, but we spent all day there worshiping and praying and worshiping and praying and on our knees and then back up worshiping and praying and crying out for true conviction that we would be the men of God that God had actually created us to be. And men renewed uh, their lives in the Lord by the hundreds of thousands and went home to their families and said, you know, I want to be a better man. And um, we still need that again today. It's not enough time to chat about all the amazing revivalists throughout the years like William Branham and Catherine Coleman led a lot and John G. Lake and Amy Semple McPherson and there's so many more, many, many, many more. We could do series upon series and talk about history, but here's what I want to get to today. And somebody prophesied to me recently right here at Grace Church just a couple months ago. They said, you're here to, 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 uh, to expect a revival and you're here to set this church up for revival. And I said, yeah, I think the Holy Spirit has already told me that. That confirms something. But here, here's what... It, Here's what I want to talk about. Ten characteristics of a true, genuine, and authentic revival. And I'll go through the ten pretty quickly, but I want us to prepare, discern, and pray, but let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Is that okay? Let's keep our eyes on Jesus, but we're here to pray, and we're here to discern, and we're here to prepare. And, and what I mean by that is the, the expectation that we should have is, can you do it again, Lord? Each revival or awakening shared some common themes. When they deviated from these most important characteristics, that's when they got off track and were subject to scrutiny and heresy and in some sad cases, even spiritual abuse. But let's pray that that doesn't happen in our day. Number one, timing. There's no need. Somebody say timing. There's no need to pray for a revival if we don't need it. There's no need to call 911 unless someone needs to be revived after they've had a heart attack. Does that make sense? And so the reason I'm even talking about it, preaching about it, doing a whole series on wells is because we desperately need it in our country. It, it doesn't make sense to preach this stuff if it's not the right time. If everybody's renewed and everybody's revived and we're seeing all the miracles we're, we're supposed to be seeing... It's not the season to pray for revival. It's the season to just live like that's normal, but we're not really there, are we? You might be, because you're amazing, but our, our country isn't there, and not our region either. So revivals emerge during times of spiritual and moral decline, which leads to intense prayer. And Isaiah 60 says this, For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, 
but the Lord will arise upon you. Somebody say me. And his glory will be seen upon me. I changed you to me. Matthew 4, 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death from them, a light has dawned. Somebody say a light has dawned. Number two, prayer. There's, God puts a longing into the hearts of many to pray for revival. And the characteristic of most revivals that I've read about and heard about was this character of prayer. And people get together to pray in their homes and at churches and on the street corners and, of course, in tents and parks and everywhere else and by the beaches of California. Um, there's, a, there's a rebirth and a, and a desire to pray more fervently, both privately and corporately. Why? Because prayer keeps us aligned with God's will and God's ways. And we, we, sometimes we have not because we ask not. And we ask God, what, what do you want to do in our day? Romans 8.26 says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There comes a time when you let that groan, that hunger in you, that groan just sort of be experienced, and you spend some time alone with God. If you need to walk in the park, you need to get into your prayer closet, you experience the groaning. Maybe like that gentleman that got saved in Reading, and you say, uh, my, my heart, my soul is groaning for something that I don't even know if I can explain, but we need something in our day. I need something. My family needs something. Amen, somebody? There's, there's a rebirth even now of praying together and interceding together. Then number three, another characteristic is the word. Somebody say the word. That means the Bible, the canon of scriptures, the preaching or reading of God's word brings a deep conviction and a, and a desire for Christ or toward Christ again. Hebrews 4.12 says this, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there comes a time again during renewal and revival where, where you can read scripture in a new way. And people return to what the Bible has to say. There's a flippancy right now in our culture again. I mean, I mean seriously a flippancy. And so the words, because the Bible said so, doesn't, doesn't mean anything to our culture. Right? They go, what do you mean? I don't care what the Bible has to say. There used to be a time when you could say that even to someone in a secular setting. They go, oh, I didn't know the Bible said that. Oh, wow, we better take heart. Now you go, what do I care about what the Bible has to say? So we're going to see a return again to what, what God has already done and what he's already said. We hold that at a very high, reverent value. Amen, somebody? And then number four is the Holy Spirit. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the renewal of the Holy Spirit comes upon hundreds of thousands of people, starting with you and your family. The Holy Spirit takes people to a spiritual depth that they could not achieve on their own, right? In Acts 2, 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then in Acts 4.31 again, this is a different setting. And when they had prayed at this place in which they were gathered together, it was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Somebody say, do it again, Lord. Yeah. Number five, conviction. An authentic move of God has the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you like that word. I've come to really enjoy the word because 
Because when the Holy Spirit is the one convicting, I like to call it the sweet conviction of the Holy Spirit. He's loving, he's gentle, he's kind, and then he's very sharp. And he gets to exactly what's going on with you and me. And he, and he has a way of putting his little sword right where it belongs or pressing on the tender spot where we need to be convicted and adjust our life to be aligned with God's will and God's ways. Come on, somebody. We should actually desire the true conviction of the Holy Spirit, not guilt and condemnation. I'm not talking about shame. Shame actually alerts you to what you've done wrong, but it does nothing. There's no power in it to set you free at all. It just alerts you that there's something amiss. Whereas conviction says, I am coming to point something out, but I'm the one here with you that's giving you the power to say no and yes to Jesus Christ at the same time. No to the sin and yes to Jesus. Amen. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.5 says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, Paul says, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Number six, glory for God. This is where we need eyes on Jesus, not eyes on other things and celebrity preachers and manifestations and numbers necessarily, but it gives glory to God and he receives the praise and the honor and glory for the revival. That, that's really, really important. When people deviated from this, um, they got way off and started uh, some strange ministries back in the day as well. Matthew 15, 31 says, so the crowd wondered and Jesus, at Jesus when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. They saw the miracles, and they said, praise God, right? They didn't hone in, and, and, and yeah, they were followers then of Jesus Christ, which he was God, but they didn't try to make a ministry just around this and say, that marks the spot. I'm going to build a temple right there where that person got healed and you know stuff like that. But anyway, I like, I like to adopt this phrase. What's happening is happening in spite of me, probably not because of me. Let's stay humble. You okay with that? He's awesome. I'm just, I don't know if I'll ever catch up. I know that we preach sometimes a message where, I'm awesome, you're awesome, everybody's special. And that is true, because we're sons and daughters of the Most High God. But still, all eyes on Jesus is what keeps the thing awesome and what keeps us in the right place in our right space. You okay with that? All right, number seven, reformation and renewal. And what I mean by that is in the entire region. Characteristics of a true revival, a true, so we call well of revival, is marked by not just us in our cute little church settings. Oh, come on, somebody. Sunday go to meeting Christians. We're actually Christians on a Monday. And people start to take notice. Like, this person's coming into the office just a little different. He shows up on the job site. I don't know what it is, but he's probably drunk. Now he's filled with the Holy Ghost and with fire because of what he experienced on the weekend, perhaps. And then he starts to say, can I pray for your back? Would you like to hear about the life-giving message of Jesus Christ? And people start to take notice, even in our culture, where there's a reform of morals and people start to convert at a broad level. Psalm 33, 12 says, blessed is the nation. Blessed is the nation whose hope is in the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. So it's not just for you and me personally. It's for all those around us, and it benefits our church family, of course, and your group and um, everybody around you. Number eight, 
Ooh, manifestations. Now we're getting into the good stuff. Now this set a lot of people's teeth on edge over the years, but when you read about revival history and moves of God history, there are so many strange revivals of, of people falling over, you know, screaming and crying and some laughing manifestations and what we know is travail and vary, of course, by culture and, and denomination all over the place. Some had more of this than others. But um, here's what I like to say. When God's power is experienced, listen to me carefully. You're made of spirit, soul, and body. You okay with that? We preached that before. You have a spirit, soul, and body. When God's power is truly experienced, our flesh or our soul realm has to figure out how to act. And yeah, it can get very weird. It doesn't mean it isn't God, and it could be that something needs to be cast out. You can see that in Scripture. That's actually also true. Some people are writhing because they need freedom, and Jesus did that. But then we've learned to judge by the fruit. According to Matthew 7, it says you will know them by their fruits. And so we learn to say what is happening in that person's life, no matter what the outward manifestation is. Is this biblical? Well, there's one place. I can show you a few places. But Daniel 10.8, when Daniel encountered God, he was left alone. He saw this great vision. No strength was left in me, he says. My radiant appearance was fully changed, and I retained no strength. In other words, he was, he was uh, fallen over. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And the Pentecostals used to call it being slain in the spirit. Uh, other people uh, in revivals just call it fainting. And so I experienced that a few times in my life, and I know some of you have as well. That's not new to some of you. Some of you are going, oh my goodness, I walked into the wrong church again this morning. I'll keep looking. But... <laughs> But listen, I'm telling you that when the power of God is truly experienced, your flesh has to get used to it. And it has to catch up. And your soul realm has to go, am I okay with this? And I might experience a few things. I might just feel weak. I might just feel overly jubilant or happy. And I'm okay with that. I've learned to not look at manifestations as, as a sign of, is God doing what he's doing? I look at the fruit. Are people getting saved, healed, delivered? And they're saying the name of Jesus. Okay, okay? Three of you are okay with that. I'm going to move on. Reverent audience today. I get it. Pentecostal preachers, too much for me. All right. <laughs> Busting on you. Number nine, we're almost there. Number nine, characteristics of a true revival is often that they're a little messy. I'm okay with that. Um, Revivals are messy, controversies swirl sometimes about the miracles, are they authentic, there's abuses sometimes of authority, excesses and suspicions and theological disputes as well, I've been through all that, seen all that, heard all of that. Um, I just think revivals are messy only if people are involved, how about you? <laughs> same goes with church and same goes with your place of business, if it weren't for the people it would be amazing. But Jesus' own disciples were a little messy, how about that? From Peter and his messiness, even denying Christ. How about Judas? Was he a little messed up? Jesus didn't kick him out, did he? Among the myriad of problems in the Corinthian church were this, like claims of spiritual superiority over one another, suing one another in public courts and abusing the communal meal and even sexual misbehavior. And this was all in the first church, the Corinthian church. And so where people are, there's a few messes to clean up. Proverbs 14.4, and again, this is the Passion Translation, says it this way. The only clean stable is an empty stable. 
right? So if you want the work of an ox and to enjoy an abundant harvest, you'll have a mess or two to clean up. That's how the Passion Translation puts it. And I like that, that translation because, um, again, if you don't want any of this stuff, then we can just stick to our cute little church service and not contend for anything new. But then we also can experience the harvest like we're supposed to either. And you want, you, all of you know, I'm assuming all of you know someone that needs the Lord. Someone in your community, most likely someone in your family or extended family, someone, and I've talked to many of you, including us, we know people in our family, extended family, that still need an encounter with God. How about you? We cannot see this stuff if we're just too comfortable with status quo American church. It just won't happen unless we say, come on, Lord, we need a revival in our day. And this is what we're contending for. And then finally, number 10, revivals inevitably crest and decline. And so it's cyclical. But here's what I want to tell you about that. You get revived. And it shouldn't be cyclical. Now, that's been, but a, but a true authentic revival should be cyclical in, a, in, in the sense of like there's an emphasis on what God is doing. But then I believe God comes in and he says, I want to sustain something. Right? I want to revive you to actually keep you in that place. But there's usually a cycle of highlights that you go through. In other words, in other words what I'm talking about is there's a cycle of awareness. And people go, oh my goodness, let's all fly into Toronto. People came to Toronto from as far away as Japan, all over Europe. All, all the nations were represented in that place. You could see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation when you were there. But that was cyclical. But the move of God wasn't cyclical. Does it make sense? Why? Because... After a while, they didn't have to fly to Toronto because when they went back to Africa and they went back to Pennsylvania, they still experienced the same God of miracles back there. So what's cyclical is, is the place that you have to fly to, perhaps, or the experience, but then what God says, can you take it from here, and now that you've revived, live in revival where you are. So I want you to understand that because some people say, well, revivals come and go. That's not quite true. It's true in one sense, but it's not true about those that actually experienced revival and then lived out their days keeping it and living in it. They stayed revived. They didn't go back into a dead and dry church. You okay with that? For everything, there's a season in Ecclesiastes 3, 4, and a time for every matter under heaven. And so if we experience these things around here, there will be a season where we'll be disrupted. There might be a season where we have to change the way that we do things. But then guess what? We'll make way for the new and make the new the normal. Okay? If we have to fill the gym and put a big screen out there because we can't hold all the people in here, I don't know, two services, three services. I might have to be here for more services. I don't know about you, but listen, we might have to change the way we do things, but then we'll settle in and say, let's not go back to the old. Let's stay in the new and just go with what God is doing. Let's get revived, learn to sustain a walk with God that's dynamic and miraculous and supernaturally natural where the heavenly becomes ordinary. Anybody up to that? Let me ask you a final question. Does America need revival today? Do we actually, do you actually care about that? Yes. Amen? Yes. And, and if we don't, then I'm asking you where you're at on your journey because we need a revival of desperate proportions. Could your family, your community, even your church family perhaps benefit from a true and authentic, what I would call a genuine revival? And I say yes, we could. 
Because what was normal during the times of Azusa Street, even as far back as the 90s in Toronto, um, isn't normal today in, our, in a lot of our churches, including Grace Church. And I'm going to say that with kindness and gentleness. Shabba Shah. That's the beginning of tongues. Okay. <laughs> trying to loosen you up. Oh, my goodness, people. Berks County, Berks County alone, and God's called Alicia and I to look at Berks County as well as you, I'm assuming, because you're here. Berks County has 434,172 people in 2023. Okay, give or take a few, I don't know. That was the census. About 48% of this county is, uh, is religious. 48%, 48.4% of the people in Berks County are religious. Now, the problem with saying religious is that that does mean all religions, including Buddhism and including, including Islam and, of course, our Jewish brothers and sisters. But, um, and so they may not know the salvation of Jesus Christ necessarily, but 48% are religious. So being generous, let's just say even half of Berks County knows the Lord, being generous. The other 217,036 people need a Savior. And we ought to know this when we wake up. And we ought to know this when we go out to the stores and to the banks and to your place where you work, and we ought to know this when we're landing on the streets and when you're pulling out of your driveway, we ought to know this, that around you there's as many as 434,000 people that do not know Jesus Christ and have not heard the gospel, or if they heard it, they rejected it, do not know salvation and are not on their way to heaven with you if they were to die today. This really, really matters. If it doesn't matter to you, I'm questioning do we care what God cares about? And then it should create a hunger in us. Now, I know we can't minister to everybody. We have work to do. You got to get to the office. I understand that. But it should create a hunger in you. It should create a prayer flowing off of your lips. Do it again, Lord. The only, again, the only reason I read history is not just to be bored with stats. I'm not a statistician or whatever. You know, like, like Jay's an actuary, man. He studies numbers, right? And so I, I don't know that I could do that for a living. God bless you, Jay. That's, that's huge. But he studies stats, right? And, and, and he studies numbers. I don't do that. I look at history with a hunger in me that says, could you do that now? That's what I do. And that's why I study church history and revivals. The solution is a spiritual revival and awakening for this nation. Um, we haven't seen one in approximately 25 to 27 years. It's too long. And, and the reason I say it's too long is because a lot of folks younger than me, I was a young, young man when I experienced the last outpouring. And I know some things have happened in pockets of the U.S. since then. I'm not saying it hasn't. Churches have experienced amazing things, a variety of places, but nothing on what I would call worldwide scale or national scale has happened in about 25 to 27 years. It's way too long. People younger than me don't know what we're talking about. And rather than explaining it and explaining it and explaining it and just telling stories, I want the next generation to experience it themselves. I'm not tired of talking about it. But they need their own experience. And it might look different, you know, than Azusa Street. Likely it'll look different than the Jesus movement. We don't have as many hippies today. <laughs> Maybe we do, actually. I don't care. When it happens, I want to see it happen. I hope that I live long enough to see the next Jesus movement. I hope that I live long enough to see my kids and my grandkids and even my great 
grandkids see more than what we experienced in our day, even more than Azusa Street, even more than what my mentor experienced back in the day. There's new miracles and new signs and wonders that belong to this generation, and it's up to us throughout the generations, old and young, to keep contending for that and saying, would you do it again, Lord, in this day? Sometimes we have not because we ask not. In James 4, 2, when I finish with this verse, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. And then if it continues, it says you ask amiss. But I want to I close today by praying for revival. Would you stand with me? Somebody say, I'm hungry. <clears throat> I don't mean for lunch. Although some of you might be. I could probably find you a snack somewhere. But my spirit is hungry. My soul hungers for way more than what we have in our American churches today. Now, I love you like crazy. This isn't me standing in front of you dissing my own ministry. <laughs> That'd be a little strange. I love this. And I'll, I hope I get to do this for a long, long time. Right, Alicia? We love these people. We love this place. But at the same time, I know that God has more. God has more for us to, to, to experience in his word. And he has more for us to experience the word, Holy Spirit experience in our day. Would you be inclined to just pray with me for a bit for these generations? My friend, my, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm going to go way out on a limb, but my friend Matt is visiting today from Lifeway. And Matt, if you're feeling it, you would come pray as well. I'll hand the mic down to you then after. Um, Calvin, if you have a, a prayer on your heart, I would love for you to pray today. But we're going to just pray for revival for a while. Matter of fact, let's all just pray together at the same time. Just start crying out where you are. And I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to ask a few of my brothers to pray. Lord Jesus, we're hungry. Come on, cry out in your own voice. Let him hear you. There's a groaning and a moaning that can only come from you and your heart and your spirit. Lord, we need you. This generation needs you. This country we cannot survive without a manifestation of your glory. We need salvation experiences and we need deliverance experiences by the hundreds of thousands. We need a million soul. We need a couple million souls to be saved in this nation alone, much less the world itself. We need revival upon revival and we need a revival that's sustainable. We need people to turn from their ways. They made a mess of things. Lord, as a nation, we made a royal mess of things. Lord, and you can fix it. Lord, because when we think right according to your will and your ways, only then will we act right. True repentance means a turning away from, but it means turning to something. Lord, we're crying out for you to move in this day so that the generations younger than me can say we experienced the God of all miracles and we experienced our own outpouring in this day and we saw people saved by the hundreds of thousands. Lord, we pray for salvation for Berks County and this region from Berks and beyond. Lord, we pray for souls to turn even now to start kneeling where they are in their homes. Those people watching online, Lord, let true conviction of the Holy Spirit settle on this region. Lord, the people, even truck drivers coming in on the highways would say, what's happening here? I need to pull over and weep for a while. Lord, let people that are coming in even to the airport say, what's happening in this place? I don't know what I landed in. Let people driving in say, what's happening in this region? I need Jesus. Lord, let the fish come in to the, to the boat, the jumping into the boat. Lord, send us fishing and that we would reap a mighty harvest in this day. In Jesus' name, Lord, give us a cry in our hearts that we're waking up on a Monday morning, not just to... 
go to work, but to say, would you do it again here? Would you do it again in this region and in this nation? In Jesus' name. Matt, if you feel led to pray, I love it. This is my friend, Matt. I'm just going to kneel. Uh, you don't know me. It's not important. <laughs> Vern knows me. The Lord knows me. I've heard Vern preach many times. I've never heard this. I've heard his heart. But what the Lord is saying today is you didn't hear a message. You've heard an announcement. You've heard an announcement. I had no idea what he was going to preach today. I came in with my family. And as we were worshiping, glory to God. I just saw wells exploding. I had no idea what the message was, Vern. I had no idea. And I had a vision of this place, this sanctuary, and a wind blew in from the back doors. It was a powerful wind. And it blew from behind the people as if they were trees. And this is what the Lord said, those who would bend, they will burn for me. And those who will not bend will break. And I saw trees that would bend and I saw mighty oaks that would not bend and they broke but those that would burn for you. And so, Lord, I just pray, Lord, this is your spirit is moving right now in this place, Lord. You, And I said, if you want me to pronounce this, Lord, then Vern will call me. I, I had no idea. So, Lord, this is about you, not any man, no named person, Father God, other than Jesus, wonderful Jesus. Lord, I pray that this revival that's announced, Lord God, would come. And you said this, announce freedom in this place too. Freedom is here. Lord, you've come to set the captives free in Reading, in Berks County, in this place, Lord God. Yes. And it will be bilingual. It will be in many languages. Lord, you have seen your children of every color, every stripe, every nation, every tribe. You are coming for them all. Those who will bend will burn, and those who will not will break. So, Father, I pray that our hearts would bend before you, that you would plant your seed, plant your seed, plant your seed. Thank you, Jesus. Glory to you in this place. You have made an announcement today. Fulfill what you, your purpose is. We are your humble servants. We surrender to you in Jesus' name. Thank you, Matt. Calvin, would you, would you want to pray if you feel led? You don't have to. You're good. Okay, okay, good. Thank you, Jesus. Let it be done. Somebody say amen. So be it. Let it be done, Lord, in our day. Listen, before you go, I know some of you are hungry, but I pray that the hunger for the Lord outpaces and, and is, is greater than your hunger for lunch right now. But listen, there's a few souls here that need to be rededicated to the Lord. It was glorious what happened today in the baptism, water baptism. But some people here are just ready to begin their journey with the Lord. Let's take a moment right now and acknowledge them. If you're here today, let's just close our eyes just for one moment. Some of you pray under your breath. But if you're here today and you need the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, to acknowledge that and to start it. Would you raise your hand high so I can pray with you? Yeah, you? Good. Anybody else? Two. Two at least? Yeah. Come on, anybody else? I see two, maybe three, maybe four, five. Come on. This is good. Let's celebrate. Let's celebrate. Let's, let's pray together. <clears throat> let's pray together. Let's, let's all pray with them and for them. Say, Jesus, I fix my eyes on you. I turn from my sins in heartfelt repentance. I receive your love and your forgiveness. 
and salvation for my soul. Holy Spirit, fill me. Teach me. Lead me in paths of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Let's celebrate one more time what God did today and is doing. Let's come up here.